All right. So I get to open up with the first psalm. Here we go. The way of the righteous and the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Alrighty. Good morning, everyone. Hopefully uh, you're doing well. My name is Joel. It's a privilege to be able to lead us together as we explore God's Word. Um, hopefully for all of our young people, that is still fresh, yes. Um, we were on camp this week and uh, we spent a fair bit, fair bit of time looking at Psalms and particularly Psalm 1, so I thought let's dive into it again on Sunday since it's fresh in my mind, it's fresh in our young people's minds, so at least a few of us will be able to dig into it and hopefully... By now, they've nearly got it memorised, surely. I mean, we've talked about it enough. But um, I just want to thank, I, I, I just really want to thank our young people. A few of them are here today, a few of them are probably still recovering. Um, but, man, these young guys are awesome. Like, we had such a good time on camp. And we had 22 young people. We had probably about, uh, say, four or five who were sort of unchurched young people as well. So um, it was just a really good time. You know, we pack a lot into a few days. We did four sessions over three days plus morning devotions each morning. So it's like almost six sessions we did in three days. And these guys engage with it. They listen. They're hungry for it. And then we have games and we do one more about six times. Um, and we have stacks of fun. Um, they get along really well with each other. They're inclusive. And I just really want to honor them and thank them for a great couple of days. So give them a hand. Young people, men, certainly make my job easy, so thank you guys. Uh, and thank you to the church as well for your support. Uh, a lot of people I know were praying, and a lot of people provided food, the two most important things you need on youth camp, so thank you very much for that. Um, like I said, we had a great couple of days, and um, excited to see the fruit that grows from the seed that was planted. So, um, yeah, we're excited about that. And um, this morning we, um, we kick off into our Five Solas series, and um, we're sort of doing over the next five weeks looking at um, the Five Solas or the Five Alones. Um, oh, let's test my memory, I forgot to write them down. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. That's not the order we're doing them in, but you can sort of see up there the little images hopefully will remind us where we're going and... Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's exciting, especially as we lead up to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation at the end of the month. Um, yeah, it's going to be a good time to look at these things. And really, I guess, five of the key uh, foundational principles, theological statements that came out of the Reformation on which um, Reformed theology is built upon. And if you were here last week, John Stout, John Stout, John Scout, sorry, 
I've been talking a lot this week, so if I get a few words mumbled, you know, that'll be why. But um, John Scout did a great job last week, I thought, of giving a nice overview of Reformed Theology. Uh, I don't think he's here today, but uh, if you get a chance to see him, make sure you thank him, because we gave him free reign. We said, you can do whatever you want. Like, it's a free week. We're starting our series next week. And he's like, oh, no, I want to sort of fit in with what's happening. And I just think that is a great example of his humble and servant leadership. So, um, and I thought he did a great job, particularly tough topic, particularly if you're not preaching regularly. So um, I think that was great. So this morning we get into sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. So all the solas are Latin phrases. Uh, so we'll be looking at scripture alone. I guess the big question for me as we, as we dive into it this morning is, you know, when it comes to issues of faith, the big question around this is where, where do we go? Where do we go? What has the final say? What is the authority when it comes to issues of faith for us? And... You know, I know the right answer, you know, God, Jesus, Bible, all right? So we know the right answer. But my question is, what, like, actually practically, how does it work out for you? Like, look at your own life. Where do you go? Where do we test things that we hear from our friends? Do we test things that we hear from our friends? The stories that we read about, the experiences that we have, you know, the sermons that we hear, where do, where do we go to hear the truth and what sort of do we use to actually sort of measure that and sort of actually give it? If, it's, does, if, if multiple people say it, does that sort of justify it and therefore it's good? Or, you know, if, if it's, you know, historically accurate, does that sort of tick the box then? Or does actually God's word be the authority? And so that's what we want to look at this morning. And um, I thought I might start by sharing a story from, um, about John Wycliffe. Um, so... If you've seen the newsletter, there's another story on there um, on the Desiring God website. So if you go to Desiring God on Google and you type in um, here, here we stand, every day they are doing a different story of one of the uh, significant characters of the Reformation. Um, so every day they release another one. It takes like five minutes, five, ten minutes to read it, or you can listen to it and it takes, I think, five to seven minutes. It's a great way, if you want to sort of learn more about the Reformation and particularly the theology that came out of it, a great way to get it in terms of like story form and just actually, and um, yeah, learn from the stories, hear from the stories and to be, be inspired by people that um, really fought for a lot of things in a very tough situation. And John, John Wycliffe was no different. He was born in 1330. He died 54 years later, 1384, almost exactly... 100 years before Martin Luther was born. So this is sort of like he set the stage, I guess, for the Reformation. By his teenage years, he was studying at Oxford University, grew up in England, and then he, um, he took his place among the faculty a few years later. He lectured and wrote in the field of philosophy, but felt the tug of biblical studies, and he applied himself rigorously to the study of theology and scripture. And as he did that, he started to realize how much the church had had drifted away from the, the biblical truth. And so in the 1370s, he produced three significant works. Um, the first one, he took aim at the Pope and the papal authority. So he was at a loss to find biblical warrant for the Pope's authority. And he, he argued um, that actually Scripture was the true authority. And you can imagine that didn't put him in any good books within the church. Uh, secondly, he, he, he had another dig at the church 
and their authority over the English crown and nobility. He saw no reason for England to be obligated to support a corrupt church. Once again, not in the good books. And then his third, third work, he developed further the doctrine of authority of Scripture. And the reason these three works are important because um, some people came to the university and they took the writings home to Prague and when they were in Prague they in turn influenced Jan Hus who you can read about in the newsletter. And the two of them would be influential in the early writings of Martin Luther. But probably one of the biggest works that John Wycliffe and probably one of the reasons his name probably rings a bell is that he called for the Bible to be translated into English. So according to the Roman Catholic law, translating the Bible into a common language, it was heresy. And it was a heresy punishable by death. And here John Wycliffe, he thought it's almost like, think about it, it's almost impossible to imagine a church that would not want the Bible to be read in a common language, to keep it from God's people. But that was the corruption of the time. And so, against all will, knowing that heresy was their, was their future, that they would be put to death if they you know, got caught, he and a group of colleagues they committed themselves to making the Word of God available. So not only did it need to be translated from Greek and Latin, it also had to be hand-copied and then distributed. So this is prior to the printing press, it's prior to smartphones and all this jazz where you can just copy and paste, control V, easy done. This was a painstakingly hard task. And despite hundreds of challenges, the Bibles were produced, hundreds of them, and they were distributed to a troop of pastors who preached across England and the Word of God made its way to the people. And there was reform in England and across Europe. And so despite John Wycliffe falling out of favour with the church in England, and especially falling out of favour with the Catholic Church and the Pope, He remained convinced of the authority of Scripture and devoted his life's calling to help Christians study the Bible. On December 30, 1384, he suffered two strokes and he died. And he was later, so nearly 50 years, or 30 years later, he was deemed a heretic by the Catholic Church. And um, they dug up his bones, burned them, put the ashes down the river. And at that same council, they put Jan Hus to death. And they were both deemed heretics and heresies. And that's the story of John Wycliffe. But the story doesn't end there. For many of you know, still today, there's the Wycliffe Bible Translators, an organization that is, I guess, inspired by John Wycliffe. They translate the Bible into local languages all around the world. And um, they allow people to read the Bible for themselves in their own language. And I think that's, that's pretty cool. Because, believe it or not, there's... Th- thousands of people, probably millions of people around the world who, who can't read the Bible, can't even access a Bible in their own language, that this is work still going on. Like, I don't know if you can imagine that. Imagine not being able to read the Bible in your own language. Imagine not being able to read at all. You're just sort of, you're just relying on what other people say. You're relying on, you know, different things. And yet, and so when we talk about sola scriptura, when we talk about scripture alone, we're not just talking about a nice sort of idea or just a simple theological statement. This is something that people fought for, they gave their lives for, and they, they still do to this day. People giving up their lives to translate the words so that we can read it. 
And so for me, I gotta, I, for me, part of our talk this morning is not just unpacking the theological side of things, but also the practical side of things in that, do we actually value what we have here? You know, like Psalm 1 said, do, do we actually delight in the law? I don't remember if you remember Andrew, he stood up here once with a $100 note. I prayed and asked God to give me one this morning, but I couldn't find one in my wallet. Um, but he stood up here and he said, you know, how many of you would come up here for a $100 note, you know? And then people, people would hands up and there's a couple of people run up. And he said, like, how many of us would do that for prayer? Do you remember? Maybe it was $50, I don't know. Maybe, I can't remember. But. Well, my question is, like, how many of us would do the same for God's word? Like, do we actually believe that this is actually God-breathed, it's useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, that it is, you know, a light into our feet, a lamp into our path, that it's actually the revelation of God, that it's truth, it's salvation, it leads us to salvation. Like, do we actually believe that? Because if so, it has way more value than a piece of paper that our society says has value. Does that make sense? Like, like, so I feel like, you know, this morning, it's not just about getting a few theological ideas right in our head, but it's about actually seeing that this is important that this is God's word and we need to treasure it and we need to read it and we need to delight in it. And so that's what we want to unpack this morning. So scripture alone. We're gonna, I've got three points, very simple, three points for scripture alone. Firstly, it doesn't mean that we're saved by scripture alone. All right? It also doesn't mean that scripture alone is the only way God speaks. All right? So Although it says alone, we need to sort of hear the general context around it because it sort of gets a little bit confusing, as we'll hear later on. We're not saved by, you know, faith alone, grace alone. Like if you have five alones, that doesn't really work because you can only have one alone if there's five. Anyway, it makes sense in my head. Um, so three things, that three aspects that of Scripture alone. One, that it's the supreme authority. Two, that it's sufficient for salvation. And three, that it's clear on the major themes. So we're just going to unpack these quickly and then we'll get into Psalm 1. So firstly, Scripture alone means that Scripture is the supreme authority. It's not the only authority, it's, it's, it's not the sole authority, but certainly the supreme one. Sort of traditionally in theology, we talk about four sources of theology. I think we talked about this a couple months ago when we got into the hot topics, but... There's scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. If you think about the ways we know God and the ways that we get to know God, most of them would fit into one of those categories. Scripture, tradition or history, reason, and experience. And so throughout history, these have interacted differently. So prior to the Reformation and in Catholic, even Orthodox circles, um, tradition is seen as equally to, um, yeah, you can put the next one on. So tradition is seen as equal to Scripture. So you can see there, top left, it's sort of Scripture and tradition are the authority there, the foundation, and then it's reason experience. So that's prior to the Reformation. It was the idea that actually the Pope had authority, the tradition, the line of apostolic teaching had gone through the Pope, and therefore everything he said was truth. Okay, so that was prior to the Reformation, and that's still true within Catholic and Orthodox circles today. But then I was thinking, like, 
it's, it's been different throughout history as well. So in the Enlightenment, you know, reason was elevated. It was all about logic, rationale, our intellect. If it makes sense in our heads, if, you know, we can actually make decisions, we can make thoughts and ideas, we can make theological con- constructs, and if we believe these things, you know, we can figure these things out sort of thing. And so almost re- it was almost like reason and scripture were on this equal level. Um, I was thinking about today, What's it like today in our, in our society? And I'll probably say that experience is sort of equal to Scripture. That actually, if I experience something, that has equal weight to what Scripture says. I think, um, not necessarily, you know, you know, but you see that certainly in our world, in our culture, that, you know, the sort of post-truth stuff that we've talked about previously, that actually how I feel about things and what other people have said to me, these things are just as important as... In fact, they're more important, more influential than the facts. You know, and so that's sort of probably today, I would say, that we, we put Scripture equal to experience. Um, and you know, I think it's really important to actually figure out how this all works together. That actually, you know, sort of reform view and, you know, evangelical view would be that that scripture alone is the supreme authority that is the foundation and that our tradition our history our reason they help us interpret scripture but also then that scripture helps translate our experience rather than our script our experience translates scripture so just because i'm feeling bad about things like if i feel like god is distant does that mean God is distant? No, God's word says that he never leaves us, never forsakes us. Yeah? So actually, does scripture teach us truth or does our experience sort of what we feel, does that show us what the truth is? So we, it's important to sort of figure out how these work and I think we need to know that scripture alone means that it, scripture is the supreme authority. And everything else is interpreted through that. And so when we hear someone say, I've got you know, a word for you, or I've got you know, this for you, a picture for you, we, we come back to the word. And does it line up with God's word? You know, when we look through history and we hear this person who is really smart say something that sounds really good, we'll actually go, well, what does the Bible say about that? You know, and we test everything. We come back everything to the scripture being the supreme authority. So one, Scripture is a supreme authority. Two, it is sufficient for salvation. What that means is that within Scripture, we have everything that we need, once illuminated by the Holy Spirit, to be saved. That actually it leads us to Jesus, it leads us to the gospel, and teaches us all that we need to know. It's not that we don't need, it's not that we don't use other things outside of Scripture but it's the fact that we don't need them. You know, God can certainly save people without them reading a Bible. I'm sure you all have heard stories about that. You know, you can read stories about um, Muslims in, in Islamic countries that are sort of 100% Muslim, and, you know, they've never sort of read the New Testament like it is, and yet they have a dream about Jesus and they're saved. You know, we heard stories last week uh, at Generate, with Keith Vetark, you know, sharing stories about people who, you know, they, they haven't read the, the Bible, but they saw a vision of Jesus and they came to a church to find out more and they're, 
they're saved. And we see it throughout the Bible. We see Paul on the road to Damascus. You know, he's not saved by reading his Bible, although he knows it back to front. You know, he's saved by a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. So it doesn't mean, Scholar Scripture does not mean that God is limited to Scripture, as if we could sort of box him into that. But it does mean that God has revealed himself in Scripture and that it is sufficient for us to know him and to follow him, that we actually don't need all these other things. It's great if we get them. It's great if God does them. Awesome. Praise God for these stories. But we know that through God's word that we have given all we need. One Peter says that. Peter says that. He says, you know, we have been given everything we need to live a holy life. And that, I believe, is God's word and his spirit. And so we need to know that scripture alone, that is revelation of God, that's sufficient for us to know him. And that it's particularly when it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit. When we really recognize that actually we need God to understand it. We need God's word. And that comes later in the Reformation with John Calvin. If you read through any of his work, it's all very much word and spirit focused. And so then it follows through. If, if scripture is the supreme authority and if it's sufficient for salvation, it means then that it's also clear on the major themes. That actually the scripture is clear enough to lead us to salvation, to teach us how to live and navigate the road of life. Look, we need to recognize that the Bible can be sometimes hard to understand. There are things in it that are, that are weighty, that are difficult. You know, the Bible even says that. If you read the end of 2 Peter, Peter writes about Paul. He's sort of been talking about false teachers and he says, you know, and there's also these things in there that are difficult to write. You know, you know Paul. He writes these lengthy sentences and he writes you know, these big things and people twist them to say other things because they're difficult to understand. So Peter writes about Paul saying that he's difficult to understand. So if Peter's right, like, if Peter's saying that, then how much more so? Like, for me, I'm going, okay, I'm going to struggle with this then. So we need to know that there are things in there that can be difficult to understand, that can be unclear. But what biblical sort of understanding 101, understanding the Bible 101 is this. Interpret the unclear through the clear. Interpret the unclear through... If things are unclear, interpret them through the clear. So, for example, it's very clear throughout Scripture that we are called to be a people of love. Yeah? It's like, yes. Like Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, etc. So when something is unclear, then actually one of the things we can test it through is actually does this lead us to be more loving? There's a clear thing and we can un- interpret the unclear through the clear. It's also clear that Jesus is king. If you read the New Testament, Jesus is glorified, worshipped. You know, Jesus is crowned king. So if something is unclear, one of the clear things that we can interpret it through is does this crown Jesus or does this crown me or does this crown man or whatever it is. Yeah. And so there's clear things in Scripture that we interpret the unclear through the clear and trusting that actually the Bible is clear on its major themes, that we can be united, we can agree on those things. And so that's the general idea of sola scriptura. Supreme authority, sufficient for salvation, clear on the themes. Here's the thing for me. 
and this is one of the things our theology lecturer used to always say, is that theology leads to practice. What you believe leads to what you will do and what you will live. And it's also the flip side is true, that our practice often reveals our theology. That's what Jesus says, you know, where your treasure is there, your heart is also. You know, what your mouth speaks is from the overflow of our heart. So practice and theology is something that we want to look at quickly as we wrap up. And, you know, because my question is, is this just a good idea? Is this just something that sounds nice that, you know, people fought for in the Reformation and therefore it's important, so we should think it's important? You know, is it just a good theological statement? Or is it actually something that we believe and transforms the way that we live? That actually we believe that God's word is what it says it is, that it's God breathed, that it is an authority, that it it reveals Jesus to us. And so that's where we get into Psalm 1. Where it says right from the start, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Yeah, we explored this at camp and we did a little little game. We, um, you know, I would say the line of a song, a popular song, and that they would then continue it. So we did, you know, the club isn't the best of place. The club isn't the best place to find love, so the... The bar is where I go. It's an Ed Sheeran song. Now, half of you are going like, what? <laughs> but you get the idea, yeah? I, I tried finding old songs, but I, I just, it, it was so much effort to find an old song that worked. So I thought I'd just tell the story instead. You know, and so we, we did a few of these songs. We did a few of these songs, you know. And then, you know, I would say, then we sort of flipped it and we did a Bible verse, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one another, you know, and, and we sort of played a bit to see if they could finish him off and stuff. Because the idea is this, we're all being discipled. We are all being discipled. The question is just who by? Do you know, as soon as we go, and, you know, go out to work tomorrow, we put the radio on, we're being bombarded with messages and different things that are discipling us, that are showing us a way of life. Do you know and so, you know, and so, and that's what the psalm starts with, is this progression of walking, standing, sitting. That we start by sort of walking with people, you know, just saying hi, just walking past them. And then next minute we're sort of standing in a circle, you know, trying to listen in on what they're saying, being a part of the conversation. And then the third progression is we're sitting with them. All of a sudden we're sitting we're entrenched in this way of life, in the counsel of the wicked, in the way of sinners. You know, we talked about that at camp as well. You know, walking, standing, sitting. And that's something you can look at for yourself. You know, am I, with the way of the world, with the, the way of sinners, am I walking with them? Am I standing with them? Or am I sitting with them? You know, which level am I at? And, and the reason it's important, like I said, is because we're being discipled one way or another. You know, and so it's like when it comes to you know, our lives, are we getting the truth? Are we getting our advice from the world? Or are we actually turning to Scripture and to God and letting that determine which way we're going to go? You know, so when we get our, 
you know, when we're looking for advice about love and relationships, are we, you know, are we going to the songs we hear on the radio and, you know, the club isn't the best place, so the bar is where I go? You know, or are actually we going to listen to what God's Word says and do we know what He says about submitting to one another and sacrificing ourselves for each other? See, like, for me, my heart is that over the next few weeks that we don't just get a good history lesson of the Reformation and we just learn what came out of it, but actually that we would know that this theology has to, has to lead to practice. Good theology has to lead to good practice. You know, and we do, you know, I want to encourage you to examine your own life. Do we really believe that the Bible is the supreme authority? That it's sufficient for salvation and it's clear on the major themes? Like, do you actually believe that? If yes... Do you read it? Do you treasure it? Do you value it? Do you listen to it? Do you know it? Or does your practice suggest that you believe something different? Does your practice suggest that actually, you know what, this Bible's good, but it's not quite enough to sort of lead, my, lead me in this life. I need this and I need that and I need to feel this. And Do we actually believe that God has revealed himself? And it's not to make us feel guilty, it's just to sort of make us feel actually, because if, if we don't feel that, our prayer needs to be, God, help us. You know, when we get challenged about things of faith, it's not about trying to do more. But we need to learn the prayer of the, the young man in the Bible who says, Lord, help me with my unbelief. Lord, help me. And that needs to be our prayer, that if we're struggling, that actually asking God, actually help us to read your word. You know, gather people around us to read it together. See, if we really believe sola scriptura, scripture alone, it changes everything. You know, that, the re- that's the reason we, we do a Bible reading in church. It's not just to fill time or to sort of mean that I don't have to read it because I can't read that well. Like, we do that Bible reading because we believe that actually it's sufficient. It can speak. God will reveal himself. We don't need this extra preaching, we could just read the Bible and God would speak. So do we actually pay attention to it? Or do we just sort of switch off and wait for someone to come and explain it for us? Do we actually pay attention? You know, do we seek to draw the truth out from the Word? Now, are we actively listening to sermons, to videos? Are we taking notes? Are we sort of on the front foot hoping to better understand God's Word. You know, scripture alone, it, it shouldn't lead us to be passive Christians who, who don't know the Word, but it should lead us to be active in reading and knowing the Word because we know that it leads to God and it leads us to Jesus. And so my prayer this morning is that we would be like the one in Psalm 1, that we would Delight in his word. What does it say? Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who delights in the word, in God's way of life. And on his law he meditates day and night. It wouldn't just be something we open once a week or something that we just, you know, switch on our podcast, you know, here and there, but actually it's something that we delight in. Meditating on it, chewing on it, wrestling with it day and night. You know, maybe we take it for granted. Maybe we've grown complacent. 
Maybe we've gotten lazy. Maybe we don't know how to read it. Maybe we don't know where to start. I want to encourage us that as a community, we would gather around God's Word. So in our life groups, in our grow groups, that actually we would trust that God will speak through His Word. In our homes, in our families, let's read God's Word together. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Sometimes it feels like it's not doing anything, but that's faith. Faith is actually trusting that God will accomplish His work using His tools. Actually, God will lead us to Him, you know, even when we can't see it. You know, faith is believing even when we can't see. Believing that actually God will speak to us even if it feels like this is doing nothing. Even if it feels like, you know, we're not getting anything out of it. It's really dry, whatever. Leviticus is really hard. What if we actually just trusted that actually God speaks and that He promised in Isaiah that His word will not return void? What if we actually trust and believe that? That is what Scripture alone has to lead us to. And God's promise is that blessed is the one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked, who does not stand that way, who does not sit with the world, but instead he delights in the God's word. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to be rich materially or everything's going to go perfectly well, but it means, what do we talk about at camp? That we're happy and content. That's what the word literally means, that would be happy and content. Blessed is the one. Happy, content is the one who delights in God's word. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water. You know, we talked about it at camp, but I thought it's a cool picture, so I'll share it with you as well. You know, you can picture a tree that flourishes by the river. You know, you can picture that in your mind. And then you can picture a tree in the desert that's just dying. The exact same tree would die in the desert and it would flourish near a river. The only difference is where they're planted. You know, I just want to encourage us this morning that we would actually plant ourselves in God's Word, that we would delight in it, that we would cherish it, that we would read it, that we would know it, and that when we would be like that, that we would actually flourish into the people that God wants us to be. That we would grow that would bear fruit and that would be happy and content because we know that our God is with us, that he has saved us and that he loves us and that he's called us to live a holy life. And we would trust that God's word would speak, that his spirit would empower us to know it and to live it. And that would begin to transform our lives and the lives around us. Amen? Amen. So let me pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have given it to us, that you've spoken through it. God, we thank you for the people who have gone before, who have translated it, who have fought for it, so that we can sit here now, that we can read it whenever we want. And God, we don't want to take that for granted. We want to be thankful for it. And I pray that you would, that you would I guess, help us. Help us to know it. Help us to read it. Not so that we can be smart and intellectual and just so we can know things and quote verses and and feel good about ourselves, but so that we can know you. So God, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. And God, uh, that you would open our eyes to see you. And that God, we would trust in your word 
in your gifts, in your tools to accomplish your work here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.